Hello and welcome to Speaking Out Mental Health and Football. I'm your host, Callum Archibald. In this episode, we will resume our discussion with Manisha Taylor. Manisha is an academy coach at Queen's Park Rangers Football Club. She's also an author, qualified head teacher, and runs mental health and football programmes for adults. Her personal experiences of culture, women in football, and growing up in a BAME background gives a real insight into her professional life. Here is the second part of Manisha Taylor's story. I think from what I've seen over the years, participation-wise, there's definitely a lot more uh, people from BAME groups, most most definitely. And I think that what what's really helped, and girls as well, which is really great, and girls from ethnic minority groups, which is really good to see. And the FA, I, I, I feel, and the county FAs are, are doing some great work around inclusion. Um, and it's definitely... In, in one of their, you know, their, their strategic action plans. I sit on the uh, Middlesex County IAG, and I certainly know that they're trying to now um, even more push on, on, you know, on the remit around um, social inclusion, but also inclusion around their demographic and looking at is who they have in the county. Does that represent football? Is that representative of football? And I think there's definitely a lot more will now from the hierarchies, which is great. So grassroots level, I certainly think we are, it's becoming a lot more inclusive from what I can see. Where I feel we have a long way to go is the professional game. So where you've got people playing at grassroots level, and you've also now got a lot of initiatives to help people get into becoming a referee or an ups, you know, I, I guess I can speak from a coaching perspective, the bursary schemes that actually help um, subsidize, you know, courses, which can cost thousands, hundreds and thousands of pounds. Um, and also provide, um, I guess, a little bit more of a level playing field for those from black Asian minority ethnic groups, because often what happens is, it be, where they, I feel we've, and I say they, but me included, where we've struggled is actually to get in front of these decision makers who allow people like us to have these jobs. So I think the professional game still has a long way to go, both in terms of representation, coaching and management, but also around players. And that's both boys, like boys and girls. And unless the hierarchies, if we look at professional clubs, for instance, how, you know, when we look at statistics, there are certain clubs who are uh, representative of not only their demographic, but also um, black Asian minority ethnic groups. So you've got, you know, coaches um, of, you know, many different ethnicities and backgrounds who are also qualified you know, to the standard that you need to be. So it's not just, it's not a token gesture. But if I look at, and I'll use QPR as an example, that I, I'm fortunate that I've got Chris Ramsey and that we've got people like Tony Fernandez, Ruben, um, you know, in terms of the owners who also come from diverse backgrounds. You've got Les Ferdinand, you know, as our director of football, who understands adversity. So when we really think about 
um, inclusion, I'm looking at people like Chris who employ people like me and others at the club, Paul, Paul Hall, um, you know, and the MP, both black, but both work with the under-23s. Paul Furlong, black, worked with the under-23s. You've got myself, you've got women in, in important roles um, it, within the club who are full-time. And you've also got coaches of, you know, who are white and of other, other ethnicities. So it, we wouldn't be getting those opportunities if it, if it wasn't for people like Chris, who are forward-thinking, visionary, and actually uh, see beyond gender, race, religion. If we need more people in those jobs that represent inclusion, but also, um, you know, act on it too. So it's not just, we're not saying you should just get people into posts for the sake of it, but we, we need, you know, we need people who are going to be open to um, allowing, you know, opportunities. And I think that's where, in terms of the effort, you know, certainly with there was talks of the Rooney Rule and having something similar in football, that what that does is not guarantee you a job, but what it does do is actually put you in front of decision makers where sometimes you're not even getting those opportunities. You know, we're not, you're not even getting in front of um, board, board members. You're not even getting in front of, um, you know, academy managers and directors who can help you on your pathway to getting into the professional game. So for me, the biggest thing from just, you know, being at QPR certainly now for two seasons has been, if it's not for Chris, I'm not getting a job at QPR if it's not for Chris. And I say that quite firmly because I know that he understands what it's like to go through the fight, to go through the struggle in terms of having the qualifications and, and just trying to volunteer, you know, whereas, we, you know, like I said, I'm fortunate, but unless you have people in those roles that are open, like, like Chris is, then I think that we're still going to be in the same place in the next 10, 20 years. We'll still be having the same conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, and I know there's research that's gone in to say that kind of people tend to hire like-minded people. I think it's really interesting what you're saying there about kind of Chris, Chris Ramsey and Tony Fernandez, and they kind of maybe will look kind of beyond the the first thing and it you want people to get in the door and you want it to be diverse you want football to reflect kind of the society you want it to be a representation of your area of your team yeah and if if that's a diverse area then you want to see that in the team in the coaching staff in the entire club because then it it is the the community that that's what football clubs are they are they are part of the community um and i think what you touched on there is is really fantastic insight um, and in, in terms of kind of, I know we talked about a range of different topics, but in terms of kind mm. of the mental health aspect of all of this, there's this kind of, from what I'm looking at, there's two different sides to kind of football in, in terms of mental health. And it's one that I'm exploring a little bit and I'll be interested to hear kind of your thoughts on this as well. There's, there's the pressures that are involved in the professional game and everything that comes with that being a career whether that's playing it coaching it being an owner yeah. whatever that is and then there's the side where it's kind of a recreational thing that people can do to bring people together as well yeah and that's and I think the great thing about football is that it can um it it can impact upon your well-being 
um, in so many different ways. And it's got the highs and lows at different levels. And if you are somebody at grassroots community, and that's where I think about the Wingate program, that's perfect for those adults who want something that's non-competitive. It's social, um, there's engagement, it's fun, it allows you to just come and make friends. There is no clear, um, you know, focus structure where for instance you know if you don't turn up or you can't come to the next session it's very much you know informal and a drop-in and very friendly and then I go to the end of for example working at QPR and as a coach in terms of my own uh, well-being um, one of the biggest things I recognized for me was how resilient I had to be how much more so, you know, confidence I had to gather and um, how much more bold I needed to be as a person, particularly because you are fighting with so many different um, challenges. The fact that I'm female, so we're looking at gender and that there's such an inequality still within professional football clubs around female academy coaches. I'm looking at the fact that I'm, you know, Asian, of Asian heritage, and that where you do not see people like you in those roles, and others have perhaps not been used to seeing people like you come in, it's really difficult. And it was difficult, and it was challenging. And I wouldn't say it's become um, less challenging. What I've learned to do is to um, better understand football, the academy culture, how the environment works. I've become a lot more uh, resilient. And I know that that's one of the things for me is I need to continue to be. Uh, I need to continue to certainly develop a lot more self-confidence because it's a, it's a male-dominated environment. And, you know, and I will praise the, the friendliness of the staff and the people at the club and the fact that they're really welcoming. But... What we also have to remember is that I, you're one of, you're one of, I can't even say one of few, you're one of the only, on the only Asian female academy coach. So when you're the only, if you do something wrong, unfortunately, and it shouldn't be like this, so if, if you um, don't perform to, to what you, what is perceived uh, to be good, or if you know, you, you you did something or you said something, that would stand out before anyone else says something. Pure, not because my comment might have been good or bad, purely because I've said it. So I think that um, until we can readdress the balance with the inequality and until we can create a culture where it's almost normalised, so when I first came in, of course, it wasn't, it's not going to be the norm for the other coaches and the other people at the club as much as they were, you know, nice and welcoming because it will be difficult for them to resonate with me when I understand the fight or when we would be playing teams, for example, and the teams would just assume I'm the physio or one time I wasn't allowed in the changing room and I had to explain I'm the coach to which then I was allowed in. And, you know, he kind of joked it off, um, which is fine. And I'm not, you know, I'm not by any means 
kind of saying that anyone's been derogatory or anything like that. What I'm saying is, is that I'm, I'm better understanding the culture and that actually, unless you have women in that environment, how will you know how to act and behave? You, you won't know, will you? Because you're used to a certain culture and you'll just do things the way you've always done them. And that's no one's fault. It's the fault of the system because it's always been like that. So someone has to be there to break the cycle. And that's why for me, I go back to someone like Chris um, and Alex Carroll, our academy, you know, he's our academy manager, that Chris and Alex allow me to help break that cycle. So it means then we can create pathways for other women, but others from all walks of life so that you're not then seen differently. And then you're not just, it's not assumed that you're the physio or, you know, that you're not allowed into the changing rooms or, and things like that. So I think when, you ca when you're carrying a range of protected characteristics, and unfortunately you're the minority within this majority group, um, you do get looked upon. So you are going to have to be better than anyone else try to be to the best of your ability you are unfortunately going to have to be um try and get more qualified even more qualified try and get um a lot more wider experience try and do other things in addition perhaps to that direct role uh, to, to to get a lot more credibility or to gain credibility and it shouldn't be like that but on a personal level i feel that i'm in a place where that's where I am until we start readdressing this balance. And kind of going in there in that situation, like you're saying, you were the only female ethnic minority academy coach. Did you feel like if you were to be struggling, did you, would you feel confident in opening up to somebody about that in that situation? Fortunately for me, because I would open up to Chris. Um, I've known Chris since 2014. And I've also known, um, I've been really good friends with Andy Impey uh, for a long time, like prior, prior meeting Chris. So there were two people that I would call up imps all the time. Um, and I would always let Chris know. And, you know, Chris is a really good friend of mine outside of work. And, Fortunately for me, because of that rapport and the respect I have for Chris as my boss um, at the club, I would let him know that I don't understand this. Can you explain that part of the philosophy with me? Can you sit with me? And what he was really good at was doing was just putting, we, we kind of spoke about um, an initial development plan. So I came in for four months to volunteer. And it was great because I was able to, I, I would come in at 10 in the morning. I would leave at eight at night. I would look at the 18s, I go into the gym, I look at Rob Nickel in the education, I'd have conversations with kind of all the multidisciplinary departments, just to gain a better understanding of what academy life is like. And then what Chris got me to see was actually really, it was just like a big school. And it just made me link it back to what was it like for me when I was in a school. Um, so because of that, and I guess because of the, the relationship that I, you know, I had with Andy Impey and I had with Chris, I was able to do that with them. If I didn't, then I, I know that I, I would have struggled. And I'm not going to say that I didn't struggle because for that, that first season was really difficult. And I really did struggle. I was struggling to um, 
it, it was with me though the struggle was with myself I wasn't feeling as confident I felt that everyone else was better than me I was looking at all the other guys just think feeling completely out of my depth and I would go home crying and really upset and not because people were horrible in fact they were really nice you know really nice the, the guys that you know that, that, that I work with but it was me it was it and that was for me to get over and then it goes back to that resilience that because I felt I couldn't see anyone similar to me I was struggling with what other people would see would I if I don't do as well would would that uh, perhaps not create pathways then for other women forget being Asian, but other women who may want to get into academies, will people be looking at me thinking, God, she better be good because if she's not, when, you know, that's then going to hinder the chances of others. So it was pressures I was putting on myself. And it was only then when I spoke to Chris and Chris said to me that if I don't start believing in what I can offer, I will hinder my own learning and development. And it was only the back end of my first season and then, you know, just finishing off my second season, did I develop a lot more self-confidence. Um, and I mean, I myself feel I'm in a better place now than I certainly was when I came in, in terms of resilience and com and that confidence. And also, um, don't forget that I would have gone through a period of two seasons now where, you know, the teams that we play, you kind of know opposition, you know, you know faces, the faces know you, and you feel, I certainly feel a lot more comfortable. And I think it was just that, that the fear, I was out of my comfort zone. I was completely out of my comfort zone when I came in. The, the academy for me was a whole new world. I spent five seasons at Middlesex at the Girls Centre of Excellence. But the structures within, at that, you know, I, I, I know that, the structures have changed now to regional talent clubs. Certainly when I was at the, you know, at Middlesex, structures are very different to what it was like in, in academies. And I go back to that whole, the culture, the football culture. It was, for me, I, and I still have to better understand it, but I really need, needed to become better equipped with understanding academy life, how, how it works, how, how it operates, um, the nuances within academies that were very different, I guess, to the female game in, in the structure that I was used to. And I was comfortable in that structure. So it was good com coming out of my comfort zone, certainly. But you, you need a lot of resilience. And I think what, what certainly helped me was um, building some part of that when I became a senior leader in schools um, and you know when I then became a deputy head and I was you know acting head when the head teacher was out and you're having to deal with um, governing you know other governing bodies HMI whether it's you know um, like the parents and things like that so all those things have certainly helped me in my journey to build me as a person certainly as a teacher I've become better better equipped uh, with the PMA, um, you know, looking at child development and learning um, and, uh, you know, and how we can help children learn that, you know, although they're, they're in academies wanting to become footballers, they're still children first. All of those things have certainly helped. And, and you know, I'll just add that one of the other things that Chris really got me to do was 
have a look at what I know, what I knew was child development and how I can then influence the players that we've got in the academy through what I know and at the same time become then therefore better equipped with the QPR philosophy, the QPR way. Um, and it was great just being able to come in and shadow Chris and work with him. And, you know, and being under his tuition for me over two years, I'm a completely different coach in terms of on the grass, but also as a person. I wouldn't be where I am if it wasn't for him. Definitely not. It definitely sounds like you've been in a really positive environment with some some people that you know you can kind of reach out to if you've got those issues. And, and, and like you're saying about child development and stuff, that must make you in your position having kind of done all this work on mental health and child development, be really conscious of when you're working with these players of kind of opening that dialogue and making sure that they're happy in their environment as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think I'm in a good place at the club where there's, you know, there's Chris, there's Alex, um, and also, you know, like Lee Hayes, who is my lead face. We've got people who are really embracing of... um, how we can help the players, ideas on how we can help the players. So whether it's, you know, me creating learning resources that directly link into our philosophy, uh, whether it's looking at the players' learning journals and, you know, scaffolding, um, looking at assessment for learning strategies that, again, that I would link directly back into our philosophy. But I would look at also how, you know, resources that perhaps that I used to create when I was, teaching maths, English or science in, in primary school, but just translate it back to football. And they've been, you know, I'm around people who are really embracing of those ideas um, and how, you know, and I've been able to implement and, and use those with, with, with the boys at, at the academy, which, which, has been, which has been great because it's helped them. If it doesn't help them, then, you, you know, uh, then there's a problem. But where it's helping them, better embed the learning of what it means to be a QPR player uh, within the pyramid that they're in, then I, you know, like I said, that I'm in a good place because I've got, I'm surrounded by people who embrace those ideas. Because I think football in a lot of ways can mirror life and society. Um, Yeah. And I think it's a really great way to open dialogue um, with a lot of, and, and I think you've given kind of a different perspective as well. Um, looking at kind of the cultural impacts of things and it it has just been a really kind of enlightening discussion I think I think for me the only whether it's to add or reiterate is um, my learning certainly from my time at QPR of being in the environment of a professional football club has been around looking at self and me really self-reflecting on how I perceive myself and not allowing uh, the perception of others and these stereotypes that we have within our society to hinder my learning and development. And that's one of the biggest things that, you know, I want to take for me moving forward around, um, conform, you know, this conforming to these traditional norms, um, whether it's to do with gender or or your ethnicity, uh, being a lot more resilient um, and being a lot more self-confident and having that boldness 
so that you are actually able to move forward as Persephone rather than when I first came into the club and I felt that I was fearful and I think it's taken a long time for me um, to overcome that but that that has to come from the person which goes back to what we discussed on um, around the parents and actually the community it has to come from them if if a seed is planted to help change their attitudes around mental health and well-being, then hopefully we can say that we've done a job there. And for me, certainly, Chris planted the, that seed of helping me self-reflect to help me develop a lot more resilience to be able to better understand the culture within a professional football club in the environment, but more importantly, to help me develop and learn so that I can continue on my coaching journey. That concludes our interview with Manisha Taylor. I'd like to thank Manisha for speaking and to do so in such an open manner. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe, review and share the podcast wherever you can. It's available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and on all good pod apps. We're also on Twitter at out underscore pod. We'll be back with an interview with sports team doctor Rahul Lakera in the next episode. I'm Callum Archibald and this is Speaking Out Mental Health and Football.